Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 and it is also March the 1st, 2019, episode 2392. And of course, since it's Friday, it's time for an expert counsel here at the Survival Podcast. I've got a great lineup for you today. Before we talk about that, though, let's talk about the day that it is. March the 1st, as in time has marched on yet again, as the first two months of the 12 that make up 2019 are gone. Hurtling us into 2020, we will have the circus music of the Ass Clown Circus played at an extremely high level, and you will be tempted to delve into that stupidity. Try to remember the mantra as we travel through the next year and a half. Not my circus not my monkeys. The main focus in your life should be not the things within your circle of concern, and not even so much your circle of influence. The primary focus in your life should remain around the much tighter circle known as the circle of your control. Even the things that you can influence, you only have so much influence on. And sometimes even when that influence is meant to be good influence, It backfires, and the influence that you apply actually is the opposite of what you intended. But you have certain things in your life that are not just things that you influence. They actually are things that you can control. How you save your money, how you invest your money, how you feed yourself, what you do to be prepared for hard times, what you do to build a business of your own. The people that focus on their circle of concern spend most of their time focused on the 10% of the tax code that tells you how much tax you have to pay. The people that focus on their circle of control spend most of their time, when it comes to taxes anyway, thinking about the 90% of the tax code that tells you how to not do it. That's the very difference right there. And Just think about this. If you could save $1,000 in income tax every year for the next 40 years of your life until you retire, if you're a young person, $1,000 a year knocked off your taxes for 40 years, then you took that money. And whatever you were doing for retirement, you just saw that extra thousand bucks you knocked off of there as a windfall. Anything beyond that, you get to play with it. You get to go out and invest it in your business or go out and blow it on a bottle of good scotch. But that thousand bucks that you did that little bit of work using the 90% of the tax code that tells you how not to pay the tax, you invested in your retirement starting at the age of 18. And because you are a good aunt, you get to retire really young at like 58. And you put that into good, solid investments, yielding an average annual return of about 10%. You would have made contributions of about $40,000 by saving money that you don't give to your government. But you would increase your retirement, even by age 58, if you started at 18, by $450,000. And this is the thing. It's not just about money. It's about every penny saved. Every penny spent more wisely. It's about every second put into something that actually puts things together in your life that do things for you into the future versus disappear and dissipate into the annals of history. It's about every single choice. Am I going to be prepared when I lose a job? And am I, am I going to be prepared if the lights go out? Am I going to pick up a $150 generator so I can run my deep freezer instead of losing $1,000 worth of meat if the power goes off for five days? 
Which decisions am I going to make? Because it works like this. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Life pushes you backwards unless you push life in the other direction, unless you move forward. And every time a month goes by, think about it just like that. Please, folks, make the most of your dash. On that, we're going to try to help you get your mind in the right place for doing that today. Got a bunch of stuff up for you. Gary Collins is going to talk about making savings automatic and painless. And this method he's going to give you, I don't actually see it as something you should be doing by the time you're 40. I think you should have way more discipline and to need something like this by the time you're 40. But I also know that we are blessed. I said blessed, millennials. Blessed to have a lot of millennials, especially tail-end millennials, the youngest millennials listening to this show, that are trying to figure out how the hell do I at least put something up for the future. Gary's going to give you kind of a cool way to do it. And it goes back to when he was a broke-ass kid in college. Uh, next up, Jessica Mills, newest member of the Expert Council, is going to give you the skinny on alcohol stoves for backpacking and camping. Uh, building a rabbit business. Somebody wrote in and asked Darby Simpson about that. Darby's going to give you the business side because Darby doesn't breed rabbits. I don't either. And my rabbit guy, well, he's not on the council anymore. He went and took a job. It's a really great career opportunity. That was Nick Ferguson. He was my council member that really had uh, the rabbit knowledge. And because of the hours he's working now, he just doesn't have time to be on the council. Um, so I'm going to do my best with the thoughts about how you figure out what to do as far as the rabbit side. Because I don't really think it's that hard. Uh, we're going to talk about running a fur furnace during a powder power outage and developing construction skills. Construction skills specifically being things like plumbing and electrical with Sean Mills. And can you compost a dog poop safely? You can if you do it the right way. Jeff Lawton's going to tell us how to do that. How about emerging demographics and their effect on real estate investing, even in a place like, oh, Alberta, Canada? John Pugliano is going to talk about that and understanding how you should rebalance or maybe just not worry so much about rebalancing your investments due to coming demographic changes and changes in the energy systems itself. And then saving versus investing and the importance of knowing the difference. That's what I'm going to talk to you about today in my Anchor segment. And we'll get into all of that in just a second. Just wanted to remind you real quick, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., the um, spring workshop at Nine Mile Farm is going on sale. You have to be an MSB member to get in early. And if you don't get in early, you're probably not going to get in at all. But here are the reminders real quick once again. 10 a.m. Central Standard Time tomorrow, March the 2nd. You can log into the MSB, and you will see a link on the main front page. You'll be able to see it. There'll be great big red letters saying to sign up, click this link, and then there'll be a big-ass link. You click that link, and you can sign up. If you sit on the main website hitting F5, 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 reload, 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 you're not going to get the link. You have to log into your member support brigade account to get the link. I always open it to MSB members first, and that's happening again. One more time, because I don't want anybody upset with me. 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. It means if you're in Eastern Standard Time, it's 11. If you're in Mountain Standard Time, it's 9 a.m. And if you are on the West Coast and coming, you got to get your ass up a little bit earlier because it's 8 a.m. Dates of the workshop, April 25 and 26. Students can camp over until the 27th. Cost of the workshop, $300. $150 due at deposit and $150 due when you show up. And I really prefer cash when you show up. Location is Nine Mile Farm in Azle, Texas, uh, which I will tell you exactly how to get to. Once you sign up, you'll get a document with everything you need to know. If you're going to be flying in the closest airport, if you want to go and check rates in advance for the dates of 25th, 26th, 
um, is DFW. It's about a 45-minute drive, uh, and Uber and Lyft uh, transportation is available between here and the airport. So that's that's that, and if you miss it, you've missed it. I've put out a video today that's on the blog giving more details about it, including some of the stuff that will be on the menu and, and what makes this one really special. Uh, why, if you've been like, oh, I don't want to go to a workshop, I want to go to a workshop, and you just haven't been able to do it up to now, this might really be the one to come to. Um, first being that it's only a two-day workshop. It's less time, that's true, but... That means less time, you know, less time you have to take off work and stuff like that. It also kind of runs into a weekend, but not through the weekend. That way you can take some time and check out really cool stuff in Dallas-Fort Worth if you're not from the area. Uh, if you're local, it makes it easy. Anyway, you can just drive in. Um, but the lower head count, I think, is what's going to be awesome about this one. You know, all in, we're talking about 22 to 24 people. That's including my wife and, you know, and, and my, my cook and, and stuff like that. So... We're going to have a lot more time for interpersonal time uh, that involves me <laughs> than we generally do. I try to be – if people that have been know that uh, I stay up way too late at these things, um, and I try to make myself as available as I can. But when there's you know 50 people around you, if you give everybody five minutes, you, you know the, the, the dead time in the middle is gone. And it just, it, you know, I try to talk in groups and stuff like that, but I, I really want to spend as much time as I can with people really hearing about what y'all are doing, answering your questions, seeing where I can help you, and it's much easier to do with a small group. So I think that's going to be cool. And because the group is going to be smaller, I think there'll be a lot more opportunity for networking because it'll be easier to get to know everybody that was here and less distraction. And the last thing, this project's not that difficult. It really isn't. It's not going to take that much time to do with this many people. And uh, so I really think that we'll have a lot of time throughout the day. We might even do some you know, bonus workshop stuff or something like that. So really consider coming if you haven't before. Again, one more time, the dates are uh, the 25th and 26th of April, and sign-up is tomorrow morning. And if you don't get in tomorrow morning, you're probably not getting in. With that, let's go ahead and take our first uh, question for the expert counsel today. We have a question on saving uh, money uh, for Gary Collins. Gary, man, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com and the author of the best-selling The Simple Life series and my off-the-grid, living off-the-grid book package, giving you the A to Z on what to expect and how to plan your project. I'm very proud of those, by the way. Um, today, I want to discuss a little tip and trick that uh, I go over, go over quite a bit in my new book called Decluttering Your Life. Not decluttering your house, there's a piece in there, but this is decluttering your life, which uh, Americans definitely need, it seems, today. I had to go through it, so I know firsthand. But most people struggle with savings. It's like 60% of the population today has less than $1,000 in their savings account for an emergency of any sort or just savings period. That's scary. I've always had six to 12 months of emergency funds in my bank account, except for times when I was very destitute as a young college lad. But I devised this savings method in college, believe it or not. Very simple. In order to force yourself to save without really even knowing you're saving is I used to pay back then it was a little different, you know, I'm not going to age myself, but I would pay everything with cash. I didn't have a credit card till later on. And I eventually just got rid of them, uh, as a, you know, a teenager, young guy in your twenties, bad idea to have credit cards. 
So I would pay everything with cash and I would save my change and all my $1 bills that I got back in change. So whatever I paid for. And I did that all through college and I would save for a year. I would take it. I would, uh, you know, get all my change together, wrap it, take it to the bank, bundle up all my $1 bills and cash it out. I would save half throw half of my savings and then the other half was mine to either go do something or if I felt I would just dump all of it into my savings. I really didn't feel the impact of savings that way. Today, believe it or not, I've been using the same technique for almost 30 years now, if not 30 years. Today, I save ones, fives, change, and tens in the occasional 20. Here and there, I just stash it away. Same principle, I save for a year. And I count it all up and I stick some in the bank or I pay for projects around my off the grid house, uh, which is, uh, half of it. But yeah, it's a very, very simple and easy savings technique that anyone can do. You don't need to know algebra, calculus or any, uh, quantum financial physics of any sort. Yeah, pretty straightforward. The big thing is discipline. You can't go dipping in that bucket. Yeah, once it's in there, my rule is once it's in that bucket, I can't touch it, period, no matter what. So hope that helps, guys. Again, I'm an MSB member. The SimpleLifeNow.com is. You get 10% off all your orders and free shipping. So take advantage of that, guys. Talk to you later. So like I said, I, it, it's not my way at this point in my life. It, we all works for Gary still today. Gary's about my age. Um, and you can do that if you want to. I'll give you another little hack like this that I used to do back when I was young and fairly broke to force myself to save. And it was basically a way to trick me into controlling my spending. And what I simply did is I paid almost all my bills with a check. You either used a check or I used a check card, a debit card. I've never been big on credit cards. It's part of one of the reasons I was able to keep myself out of debt until I got a fancy corporate job and an expense account and started buying other things with credit cards other than the shit that went on my expense account. Um, I got out of that hole pretty quick, though, once I realized I was in it. But back when I was a young broke guy, before I met Dorothy and all, um, what I would do is let's say that my bill – at the grocery store was $96.47. So I write the check for $96.47. A lot of people did, did this hack. They would round that up to, let's say, $97 and just always do that. No, I would round it up to the nearest $5 increment. So I wrote a $96 check. That went down as $100 in the checkbook. And then I would, when I would balance the books at the end of the month, which was pretty easy to do because it wasn't like there was a lot of spending when you only make you know four hundred dollars a week. Um, I would then figure out well how much did that save me, and I would just transfer it to savings a hundred percent. I didn't even give myself any of it to play with. And the reason I would do that is what it would do for me is okay you made it through the whole month without needing that money. So you don't need that money. So let's put that into savings. And what that did is it, it allowed me to accrue quite a bit more savings than I ever really thought that I could at that point in my life. So, I mean, that's another way of doing it. But I think that, you know, long term, what you need to get to is this is how much money I need to save every month, and then you just do it. Uh, it it's amazing. Uh, if you say something like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save 10% of my income, And then that 10% becomes a bill, and you make $2,000, and so you then just deposit $200 into your savings or your investments. 
you adjust to it almost immediately, and then life just goes on, and it just happens. Because when your electric bill comes, you don't go like, well, you know, I really don't want to pay my electric bill this month. You might get in a where you're cash strapped and don't have money. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm, what I'm saying is when you're making discretionary decisions, you're not like, you don't go to the grocery store and you get in line and they say it's $211. You're like, you know, I, I only want to pay 150 You know, you don't do it without putting stuff back anyway. And your cable bill or your internet bill or any other of your cell phone bill, when it comes, you just pay it. And if you look at your, uh, or your taxes, right, that just comes out of your check. Or if you're self-employed like me, you write a quarterly check to the IRS. And, oh, boy, that's why I want you all to have side hustles. That's why I want you all to have businesses. There is nothing that will make you anti-state more than actually paying taxes instead of having taxes deducted and having half of your Social Security paid for by somebody else. Uh, it'll change the entire way you think. But those are just some ideas I'd put in there with it with it for you. Uh, next, I have a question for Jessica Mills, our newest expert council member on alcohol stoves. Hey, y'all. Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust. First off, I want to say thank you so much to Jack for having me on the show as an expert council member. I'm excited to take y'all's questions about backpacking, hiking, being in nature, camping, YouTubing, social media, any of the stuff that I do that y'all have questions on, please feel free to send my way. And today the first question comes from Chris in PA. And his question is, do ultralight hikers utilize alcohol stoves? And is this a viable option for the AT, PCT, and CDT, which are the three long distance trails in the U.S. that make up what is known as the triple crown of hiking? So the details that he sent say, Often, I've observed ultralight thru-hikers utilize canister stoves like the MSR Pocket Rocket that weighs about 2.6 ounces. However, I do not recall seeing someone using an alcohol stove like the Vargo Decagon alcohol stove that weighs about 1.2 ounces. What's the good, bad, and the ugly on alcohol stoves? The short, easy answer, Chris, is that yes, some people do utilize alcohol stoves, and it would be a viable option for thru-hike or section hikes of the PCT, AT, and CDT, and really any trail that you want to get out and backpack on. Now, just to explain a little bit more, the definition of ultralight backpacking means that somebody's base weight is below 10 pounds. So a base weight is your tent, your pack, uh, your sleeping bag, all of the things that are not consumable. So basically everything but food, water, and fuel. So a lot of these ultralight backpackers choose foods that don't require cooking so they can save weight on the stove, the cookware, and a lot of them end up doing things like cold soaking. So they'll get a little Tupperware dish and maybe put couscous, mashed potatoes, Raymond noodles, and then they'll put those foods in their little Tupperware dish, add water, and then hike for a while until those foods get soft enough to eat. So that way they're changing up from jerky and, and nuts and bread, and, and they get something that you would typically cook, but they do a cold soak to save the extra weight of the cookware and the stove. Now, I checked out the alcohol stove you mentioned and saw it's about $30. It looks like a good little stove, 
But I just want to let y'all know a little tip that you can make an alcohol stove out of a cat food or tuna can. And I've actually done a video on this on my channel before.、Um, but if you even choose like a small fancy feast can, they weigh about 0.3 ounces or 10 grams. So they're pretty lightweight. And then all you do is you take a hole punch and punch holes around the top of the can so it has some airflow. You'll pour your alcohol down in the bottom of the stove. Set your pot on top, well, after you <laughs> light the fuel, and just cook on top of it just like that. In that stove design, you'd have what, maybe 50 cents for the cat food can and a few dollars for a hole punch to punch the hole. So save you a little money if somebody wants an alcohol stove to go backpacking with or just to throw in a bug out bag or anything like that. Now, the pros of an alcohol stove is that, yes, they are generally lightweight. Denatured alcohol is common to find, especially along the Appalachian Trail. And honestly, the only folks I've seen use alcohol stoves are、um, the folks that I hiked around on the Appalachian Trail. Now, you can also use something like Heat, which is a gas line antifreeze. You can find this at gas stations or Lowe's, Home Depot, and a lot of those stores are common to come across on the Appalachian Trail. Some on the Pacific Crest Trail and a little bit less on the Continental Divide Trail. Another benefit of an alcohol stove is you know exactly how much fuel you have because you're carrying the liquid in the bottle so you can see specifically how much you have remaining. The cons, in my opinion, of having an alcohol stove are you can't control the flames. So there is no sauteing, for example. You know, and this really depends on. How involved you get in cooking on the trail. I really love cooking on the trail. So sometimes I want to be able to cook something at a low heat. Sometimes I just want to hurry up and boil water.、Um, but with a typical canister stove like I use on the trail, I can adjust the flame. But with the alcohol stoves, you can't do that. You also can't put the flame out easily. So usually people just let the alcohol burn off, you know, after they finish boiling their pot of water. You could also maybe put it out with dirt or cover it with a pot, but it's just not as easy to kill the flame as it is on a canister stove. And then also spills can kind of be troublesome. So if you're ever on the Appalachian Trail in the shelters and you see burn spots on the wood, that's probably where somebody spilled their alcohol stove. And the fire continues to burn on the alcohol. So,、uh, with a canister stove, if you knock it over, you pick it back up. You know, usually it's not as detrimental. Although I have burned a hole in my tent before、um, with it, but it would have been much, much worse with an alcohol stove. So, I personally prefer the canister stoves. The fuel cans are generally easily found, especially along the AT and the PCT. On the CDT, They can get kind of iffy, but what I did for certain sections was just kind of transition to food that I don't cook. So, breads, wraps, things like that.、Uh, now, the stove that I use is the BRS stove, and it actually only weighs one ounce. So, it's still a tiny bit lighter than the alcohol stove that you mentioned. And again, with the fuel can stoves, you have direct control of the flames. So, When you want fuel, you turn it on, you get fuel immediately. When you no longer want fuel, you cut it off and the fuel stops flowing. Where with the alcohol stoves, if you pour too much, then you've now wasted that fuel. Now, a negative aspect to the fuel can stoves is that the fuel can in and of itself is kind of heavy. And as you use it, yes, it will lighten because there will be less fuel in the can. But even when it's empty, you know, it's going to be a little bit heavier than probably an empty bottle. Of alcohol fuel. So you're losing more weight with the alcohol stove you know, as you go along than you will with the fuel can stove and, and the whole setup. 
but it basically just boils down to personal preference. And there's no reason that you can't use an alcohol stove if that's what you prefer. And like I said, I definitely saw people using them on the Appalachian Trail, but they aren't as popular as the fuel can stoves. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much again for having me. And if you want to check out more on these topics of backpacking, or if you'd like to see my adventures on the ATPCT and CDT, please be sure to check out my channel, Homemade Wanderlust. So that's great stuff. Excellent first segment uh, by a new expert council member. Just fantastic. So what I'm going to add here is not in any way contradicting what Jessica said. She's definitely spent more time on the trail than me, that's for sure. Um, but I really like having a way to burn wood and to do so safely and efficiently. And the the stove that I like the most for this type of use, and it will add about nine ounces to a pack, and that is a significant amount of weight, um, not by itself, obviously, but as you build a pack out, you know, you're talking about half a pound, um, a little bit more than half a pound, and that, that can be significant. But um, the Solo Stove Light, it's about 9.1 ounces or something like that, and it burns extremely efficiently. And you can build little stoves like that out of cans and stuff as well, uh, you know, so that that's a good thing too. But I, I would just say that no matter what your plan is, if you are if you are going to be on a trail for more than a day, um, you need a plan to be able to make fire beyond your butane stove, your alcohol stove, whatever it is, uh, to be able to build fire and to be able to use fire and to be able to cook with fire and to be able to, I don't know, just have the ambiance that is fire and the uh, morale booster that is fire. And I know there's people that they're just hugely opposed to any sort of fire as a flame that's in a pit in the ground or something like that. Um, and it's very seldom been the case that I felt that I couldn't do that safely. If I did feel that I couldn't do it safely, I wouldn't. But, you know, an alcohol stove is an open flame. I know it's not burning on the ground, but like she said, you can knock it over and it spills and alcohol goes everywhere, you know. Everybody that's ever played with a bottle of, uh, what is it called, permafrost or something like that, the blue stuff. It's like 101 proof uh, peppermint schnapps and a lighter knows that can go wrong. It happens. Um, the big thing is two is one, one is none. So if your first line of cooking is a butane stove, an alcohol stove, whatever, uh, having some plan for cooking with wood along the way, I think, makes a lot of sense as a, as a plan B, as a two is one, one is none. Next up, we have a, a question for Darby Simpson on uh, building a rabbit business. And uh, Darby's not a rabbit guy, so he's going to take the business side of this. So I'm going to come back and give you a little bit of advice on the rabbit side. But as I said during the intro, my, uh, my rabbit expert is no longer on the council due to professional commitment. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of thought on that, but I, I really don't think it's going to be that complicated because I think Darby's giving you the more important part. And with that, hey, Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson with Grass-Fed Life, back to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, my question comes from Ty down in Louisiana. And as a quick side note, I'll actually be speaking in Louisiana this coming March, the second weekend of March, at the Back to Your Roots Farming Conference in Ruston, Louisiana. I hope to see some of you there. If you're a TSP listener, be sure and find me and introduce yourself. I always enjoy meeting people from this community. 
Ty has recently started a meat rabbit production business, and he is wanting some information on, you know, what would the ideal production and business setup be. And while I don't produce meat rabbits, we do beef, chicken, and pork uh, on our farm. I do have a lot that I can add when it comes to business and marketing and cash flow and all those kinds of things. So specifically, Ty is uh, uh, saying that you know he lives in an area that's got a rather high demand for uh, uh, rabbit meat, which I think is amazing. That's not the case where I live. And about a year ago, he started his business, and he doesn't have enough product to keep up with demand. That's a good problem to have, Ty. So he is wanting some guidance on how to scale up production, uh, but keep things steady and balanced and manageable because he does work a full-time off-farm job, and that's exactly how I got my start as well. So he is looking for advice on not just production, but also marketing and ways he can streamline the day-to-day chores, etc. So, Ty, this is what I got for you. If you've already got a business going, you've got some customers, and they're clamoring for more, the first thing I would tell you to do so that you can scale up is to actually go to those customers and say, hey, I'm going to scale up. Uh, if you would like more product, and I'm assuming that maybe some of this is a restaurant or a store, I'm more than happy to produce this for you. Would you be willing to give me a deposit uh, on future product? Would you be willing to give me five or ten dollars for every pre-ordered rabbit? And if you if you'll do that, uh, I can give you a, a small little discount. Uh, what that does for you is get some cash flow in the door in addition to maybe any profits that you've kept back from the past year, as well as maybe some additional money that you can kick into your business so that you can scale up. Maybe you need to go buy a new freezer. Because you're going to produce more stuff, and you got to have a place to store it. Maybe you need a new uh, shrink wrap or vacuum sealer machine, or maybe you need some money to get a new uh, nice professional label printed up uh, to put on your packages. Obviously, you got to buy more pens and more breeding stock and more feed and all these things. This is a way to get some cash flow in the door to kind of help you offset those costs so you don't feel like you're doing it all by yourself. It will really inject a uh, a lot of production into your business if you can effectively use other people's money to scale your business up. If not, I would encourage you, if you're that busy, to look at, you know, where can we get money from uh, that we're confident in, you know, investing into our business uh, to scale things up. Because it sounds like you really do need to ramp things up a bit. Um Now, when it comes to marketing, if you haven't already done so, you need to get a website going. You got to get social media going. Uh, I would, I would tell you, like, look, your website needs to be top notch. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to have tons of pages, but it does have to have good information and it needs to be professional. I would even go so far as to say it would probably be wise to see if you couldn't hire a professional photographer to come out and take some photos of your rabbits, maybe some photos of the uh, the finished product, perhaps photos of the product that's been cooked. If you're working with a chef, maybe he could prepare a couple of nice dishes for you. You get some nice photos there, uh, photos in the restaurant, get some, some quotes and some blurbs, get your website and social media going. Really try to push information out there, the benefits of rabbit, the, the benefits of my rabbit, why this is good for you, uh, you know, how this cost compares to other things, etc. Also, be willing to pass out some samples to per, uh, prospective customers, particularly, again, stores and restaurants. And I'm focusing on stores and restaurants here uh, because when you're working a full-time off-farm job, that's the fastest way to scale up sales is, is to work with those venues. So be willing to take some samples out and, again, see if you can't get them to pre-order. 
and put a deposit down on those pre-orders so that they've got some skin in the game. Even if you don't need the money, I think deposits are important, Ty, because it keeps people from walking away. Uh, when they've got some money on the line, they'll follow through with an order. I've seen chefs and stores both totally hose small farmers, not follow through on commitments, um, uh, because they just changed their mind. But if they've placed a deposit, you know, uh, more than likely they're going to be willing to follow through on that commitment. Now, as far as streamlining, uh, you know, your day-to-day chores, getting uh, some things done, I'd say hire some help. I really would. Monday through Friday, hire some help. Maybe it's one of your kids. If you have kids, niece, nephew, next-door neighbor, kid down the street, uh, perhaps a retired person in the community that's really interested in this. Um, and and do everything you can to train them, but also some, some tips I've learned from a, a, a fellow user, uh, Ben Hartman, who's also going to be speaking in Louisiana. He's a veg guy. Um, print out a checklist. Uh, you know, in, in this area, this is what you need to do. you got to feed them. You got to feed them this much. You feed them with this kind of feed. You got to you got to water them. You got to you know all these different things. You got to move them. You got to clean this pen, whatever. Bullet point checklist. Yes, you train them. You you go through those things with them, but you you put a a checklist out there. You you laminate it and you also put photos out there. Like okay, when you're done butchering rabbits, uh, this is what this you know station should look like. Or when you're done cleaning a pen. This is what a clean pen should look like, and you laminate a photograph there so you don't have to explain it to them each and every time. A photo really is worth a thousand words. I think that that really helps you maximize your help that you're paying for. Um, and again, put these things up places where they can see them, you know, and encourage them to make suggestions on on how to do things more efficiently. Uh, and then also, you need to set yourself up professionally because you are a business and you have got to act like a business. And I don't know if you've done this or not, but I see farmers tie not only one year into farming like you are, but 10 or 15 years into farming that have not set up an LLC or set up a separate bank account. We don't want to be commingling funds, you know, uh, business funds and personal funds. Uh, You've absolutely got to have liability insurance. These are just things you have to have to be a professional. Uh, you got to do it. You got to have them. You don't want to mess around with it. Something else I would encourage you to check out: Farmer to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, 125 bucks a year. Google them if you're not sure what they're about. Very, very good organization to belong to for small farmers. So, those are some of my tips. As far as production, I'm going to kick that over to Jack because, again, I don't produce meat rabbits. They do cash flow a lot like chickens. You know, eight, nine weeks, you got money coming in. So uh, my one tip on production, Ty, is to think about always staging that next, you know, that next production cycle and kind of list out your year. Uh, look at scaling up batches. Don't try and do... You know, I'm just going to pick a number, four batches of 25, do one batch of 100 or two batches of 50, um, and, you know, really maximize your help on the day you get a butcher, you know, you get some helpers over there, you knock out more of them in a day, things like that. Do what you're comfortable with, but I would tell you to do as many in a batch as you possibly can can it really does maximize your economies of scale hey for everybody else uh if you want to learn more about grass-fed life go out to grassfedlife.co 
We've got tons of resources out there, over 125 free podcasts. Uh, a lot of you are probably familiar with the big course that we've had out for about a year now. You might not be aware that we've got something brand new that has just come out in the last week. We call the Grass-Fed Life Insider. Super inexpensive, $5 a month or $49 a year. It's a uh, program we've put together for people who you're not ready for the big full course, but you're farming like Ty here. You've started. You're doing something. You're building a business. You need some direction. You need some help. This is it. Again, 5 bucks a month. It's cheap. There's already over 30 hours of content out there, including a seven-hour mini-course on how to go start a profitable farm. I cover beef, pork, and poultry production. We also cover things like how to set up a business, how to set up an LLC, why farm businesses fail, enterprise selection. That's all just in that little mini-course. I've got spreadsheets, screencasts, videos uh, on, on equipment on my farm, all kinds of stuff. Go check it out. Grass-Fed Life Insider. Again, super inexpensive. $5 a month, 49 bucks for a year. If you dig what we're doing at Grass-Fed Life and you want to go a little bit further into farming, this is a great option. I would strongly encourage you to check it out. And it's community-driven, like whatever we see a lot of questions coming in on. And, oh, by the way, you can actually get questions direct uh, answered from myself and Diego through the Insider. That's what we're going to focus on putting out there, new content every week. So always getting new content each and every week. As always, everybody, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Have a great weekend and take care. So I, I don't know how much I can add because I actually think that everything Darby gave you is some of the most important components of this. And I've never raised rabbits. But what I would say is in ramping up production, what I would do if I were you is really look at how many man hours you have in taking – X number of rabbits to market, whatever that is, because I don't know how many exactly you're selling and what your production cycle is, but you know, if you have a, let's say, a 12-week cycle from getting these bunnies to breed, whatever it is, 14 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever, from, okay, I'm going to introduce uh, these buck and doe together, they're going to breed, she's going to kit, and then X number of weeks later, I've got another group of rabbits to sell. And what's the, 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 I'm sure you have the hard costs down as far as feed and stuff like that, but what is the labor quotient in that? And then I would look at what you're doing, and the, the first place I would start is how can I lean out the labor? What is everything I can do with these five or six or eight or whatever number of hutches is that you have that, that would make everything faster? What can I automate? Uh, and I would lean out the existing system before you expand it. That, that's my best advice on the production side. Because if you were, let's say, to lean out an hour of work a week on five hutches before you expanded, and you expanded to 15 hutches, you've effectively you leaned out three hours of work. And you don't have to go back and fix the other ten. So that, that would be a thing. As far as breeds, I don't have any idea. You know more than I do. You know more than Darby does because you've been doing it. Um, that type of thing I think you learn as you go. Otherwise, I agree with everything that Darby said. I do have a caution on expansion because you can't meet your demand. We ran into this with duck eggs. 
especially when you have one big customer that keeps saying they want more and more and more and more. We had a customer that was a restaurant up in, in the northern Dallas area. It was a pretty good drive from here to there. And it really wasn't worth us, uh, us for, uh, worth it to us for us to deliver. We weren't doing this business as a way to provide for ourselves. It was like, we want ducks, <clears throat> and we got a few ducks. And then just like you're describing, well, we got more duck eggs than we can use. We have like 30 ducks. You know, we're getting 20 duck eggs a day in the high season. We use about 20 a week. Uh, so we, you know, we got a good, you know, several dozen, five, six, seven, eight dozen a week we can sell. Let's see if anybody will buy these things, put an ad up, sell them for six bucks. Everybody buys them, put an ad up, sell them for eight bucks. Sales go down a little bit, but still we sell every egg we can, we can sell. Next thing you know, we have this restaurant chef approach us. He wants duck eggs. He's going to need them starting about 90 days out. Um, we had already grown the business at that point. We grew our flock to about 60 birds. And so he was buying almost every egg we had for this restaurant. And it got to the point where, like, they can't pick it up. We can't deliver it. They got a company called CSL Foods, who they bought a lot of other stuff from, to take over picking up the eggs. And so they would pay us, and they paid great. I mean, they did everything they were supposed to do. But we were selling them the eggs. They're like, well, we're going to be buying X numbers, so how much is it for us? We're like $8 a dozen. Like, but we're going to buy, you know, X, you know, number. Like, no, you're buying eggs from our exist for our existing customer. You're not bringing us new. Like, we had to have this discussion in the beginning with these people. You're not bringing me new business. Like, this is not an additional, you know, uh, 80 dozen eggs a month. This is the existing 80 dozen that I'm already selling. And frankly, you can piss off if you, if you don't like it. And we had to have that kind of a come to Jesus meeting with them. So then we did that. And then everything went back to normal, but of course they they're not going to do this for free, so they were knocking four bucks a dozen onto the top of 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 the price in return for delivering it, which really wasn't that much money. And they prob the, the the restaurant probably could have gotten that price down if they would have taken you know one shipment a month. And duck eggs are good for sixty days, no problem. But instead, they were taking weekly shipments. So they, you know, the, the CSL Foods wasn't willing to come down on their price. By that point, they were taking about 25 dozen a week. So we built our production to meet their need. So we, we expanded way beyond what we ever planned on because we had this guaranteed income. All of a sudden, one day, they don't want eggs no more. Well, what's the matter? Did you get a bad egg? Did we do something wrong? Hemming and hawing around. Well, we got another supplier. Well, why? Why did you get another supplier? Because we suck? Because we did something wrong? No, actually, we really still like your eggs better. They're, they're a much better product. Okay, well, then why, why did we lose your business? Well, it, it costs too much. Well, how much are you paying the new supplier? And it was about eight bucks a dozen. It's about the same price. They're like, well, you know, and they, you know, well, yeah, we're paying 12 because we have to use this, this, this company. I'm like, but we have a better product. Well, yeah. Is it a lot better or a little bit? Oh, no, it's a lot better. You can see it. Okay, so you guys have been going through a hundred dozen eggs a month. I had this conversation with this with this chef again. You guys are using a hundred dozen eggs a month. You are selling out of the dish you use the eggs on every week. If if we could get you more, you would buy them. Yes, and people love it. Yes. How much is this thing you're selling our egg on? Thirteen ninety five. Okay. To be able to provide a better product, you're and they're like an upscale restaurant. 
why don't you just charge $14.95 and the whole issue goes away? Oh, we can't raise the price. Is it your restaurant? Yeah. So there's no national organization telling you you can't? No. Well, why can't you raise the price? Oh, it'll be too high. Compared to what? Does anybody else sell anything like this anywhere near you? Well, no. But we can't have our, our, our appetizers being over $13.95. Well, why not? Well, that's just what we decided. Okay, fine. So about a month goes by, and we're starting to think about, like, can we get some other places up? They had a sister restaurant that picked us up, but they were stupid, and they put us on a poutine, which just doesn't sell well in the heat of Dallas. Uh, so they were they were taking, you know, maybe 25%. They were taking maybe 25 dozen a, a month. And then they came back, and they wanted, you know, two dozen. Like, what do you want two dozen for? Well, we're short. Okay, well, I guess so. The CSL van comes by, picks up two dozen. Next week, they want another 20 dozen. Well, we, 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 we brought in new customers. We don't have 20 dozen for you this week. How many can you give us? Uh, 18. Okay, we'll take those. We, we're going to want 25 dozen next week. Okay, we can probably do that. So all of a sudden, they're back. And then they go away again for the same reason. So they had a shitty product. Their customers noticed. They came back, and they still went away again because they refused to raise the price of a dish of a dollar, which no one would have complained over. And eventually, like, you know, we're just, we just can't do this with y'all, and we need to find other people. Well, then it became difficult to make up for that hundred dozen a month. We eventually did it, but it was hard, and my wife had transitioned into taking care of the kids and stuff like that and, and really wasn't working the sales channel anymore. So my caution is when you say, I, I, can't, I can't make enough, make sure if you're, if you're resting that on one big customer, you have a plan for losing them. We didn't really care that much, but it sure gave me a window into it how it could hurt somebody that was really depending on the income. With that, let's go ahead. We have another one here. Uh, this is going to be from uh, for Sean Mills. And it's a twofer. Sean, take it away. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com. And I got two questions for you this week. They're both pretty short ones. Uh, so I figured I'd throw them together in one show. Uh, so the first question is, would there be any issue with forced or running a forced air natural gas or propane furnace from, an, from a power inverter on your car? Details. There have been a lot of episodes that cover using your car as your backup power source, utilizing a power inverter and extension cords. I haven't heard any episodes that talk about the viability of running your natural gas or propane furnace off of an inverter. The wires that supply 110 volts to my furnace would be easy to disconnect and put a 115 volt 15 amp plug into and then plug into an extension cord ran from an inverter powered by my car. In my circuit breaker box, the electric power from my forced air furnace has a standard 110-volt 15-amp breaker. The research I've done shows most gas furnaces using between 600 watts and 1,100 watts to operate. I've heard the episode where Stephen Harris details tapping into your home's natural gas supply line to fuel a generator, so I'll find it hard to believe that the safety-slash-skill level aspect would be any more difficult or dangerous than that. Is there something special about a furnace that makes this a bad option? Could this also work on a natural gas boiler that uses 110 volt for the electrical? Thanks, Chad. Hey, Chad, thanks for sending in this question. Hey, the simple answer is, yep, you absolutely can run your furnace off your generator or inverter, assuming you properly ground the system and isolate the furnace from the household electrical system. There's several videos on YouTube of people installing switches to switch the power output for the furnace. So typically it's three-way switches. One's off, 
One is normal everyday powers onto the house, and the other is running from an outside source. And typically, just like you mentioned, there's a plug wired into that switch, and they run, uh, you know, from a, from a generator or from an inverter directly to that plug, and they're good to go. There's nothing magical about a furnace that makes this a bad option. Uh, the natural gas boiler that uses 110 for the power would also run off of an inverter or a generator. I actually have a new property in East Tennessee that has natural gas on it, and I may look into running a natural gas generator and then using that power to run the natural gas furnace. Uh, that would give me nearly guaranteed heat for a prolonged power outage without the need to store gasoline or propane on site. So, Chad, I hope that helps you out. Uh, next question, what would be the single best reference resource that can be purchased for learning how to do electrical and plumbing work? Details, I'm wanting to finish my basement, and that will include a guest room and bathroom, as well as general framing and drywalling. I'm handy enough with tools, but lacking in specific knowledge with electrical and plumbing. YouTube is great, but I prefer to read and view diagrams as that works faster for me. But I am a sucker for the details and want to understand why and what I am doing and not just simply how. I have a 15-year-old teenager that has shown interest, so I would be interested in something that he could keep when we are done for future reference. Thanks for your input. Well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start at a very detailed level here and work backwards. So, in my opinion, in terms of depth, background, and diagrams, the best thing that that uh, would help you here are going to be the National Center for Construction Education and Research, or NCCER, training books. Uh, these are the books that many federally approved apprenticeship programs utilize for their classroom curriculum. Uh, personally, I prefer to watch someone do something and then do it myself. Uh, so Home Depot classes are a nice free option for that. Um, you mentioned you didn't like YouTube uh, necessarily. Hey, if you go to one of those free Home Depot classes, you can ask all the questions that you want and no one's there with an air pellet gun to shoot you. Um, I've also dabbled a little bit in the uh, Four Dummies series, so like plumbing for dummies, electrical wiring for dummies, uh, or there's one that's plumbing and then the electrical one is electrical work at the home for dummies. So those are great. Uh, Black & Decker also has a complete guide to plumbing and a complete guide to electrical wiring that may be good options for you. Uh, but if you really want that in-depth thing, if, if you've got Put it this way, if you bought levels one through four on the NCCER plumbing books and became proficient with that information, your son at 18, well, you didn't say son, but your 15-year-old teenager uh, at 18 years old could walk into an NCCER testing facility, test out as a level four plumber, get their apprenticeship card or their journeyman card, rather, and walk over to the local uh, plumbers union and, and be making in the high 20s or low 30s per hour, depending on what part of the country you're in. So that gives you an idea of how in-depth those NCCER training books are. Well, hey, with that, uh, thanks for sending those questions in. Uh, keep them coming, and I'll keep getting those answers out. Thanks. Great stuff from Sean, but what else would we expect at this point? He's just an outstanding member of the council. We're lucky to have him around. Next up here, we have a uh, question for Jeff Lawton on dealing with dog poo. Yeah, and composting it. And you might have one dog. It probably ain't worth it. But if you have a dog farm, not a dog farm, but like a dog boarding facility, or you have a lot of dogs for one reason or another, you might have kind of a problem you would like to turn into a solution 
And generally it's thought of that you should not compost dog food, uh, dog poo, or uh, the poo of any carnivore or omnivore. But uh, it can be done. Jeff will tell you how. Hi, Jeff Lawton, Australia. And uh, I have a question here from Aaron in relation to dog manure. Uh, Aaron's a, a, a dog breeder and he gets quite a few pounds of manure every week. And um, a lot of people wonder whether you can um, compost cat and dog manure. You have to be careful with both. Um, but with dog manure, mainly it's the uh, randworm eggs you might have to be careful with. And you just have to make sure you are making a hot compost. Now, that means just getting the ingredients right. So if you've got a certain amount, say a few pounds of dog manure regularly coming out, you need supplies of high carbon material like shredded leaves uh, or just bulk dry leaves um, or uh, wood chip uh, sawdust would be absolutely ideal or a uh, dry shredded hay so you need plenty of that because you need to add layers every week as more dog manure arrives so you want to put down your um, dry a layer of dry leaves first three to six inches uh, thick and um, a good four feet across in the circle, four, 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 four to five foot diameter circle, and then put your dog manure in the middle, and then cover it with green material, and some more manure if you have it, um, like cow manure, um, sheep manure, horse manure, and then another layer of high carbon material. So each layer is going to be, let's say, six inches thick to make sure, but the dog manure is going to be a pile in the middle, right in the center of the four foot diameter circle, six inches thick. Then the next layer goes on top of green material and the next, and then a pile of, of other manures if you've got them available. And then on you go and put your brown layer on the top. Always put your brown layer on the top because it's nice and friendly and it seals it off. Then as your new dog manure arrives, put it right in the middle, put your green material on top it can be slash-ins from a paddock, it can be a field slash-ins, it can be fine prunings, it can be lawn mowings. As long as they're nice and green and fresh, or it could just be weeds. Put those on the top. Any other spare manure you've got sitting around is going to help put it in the middle. You don't have to do it, but it will make it definitely hot. And then put your brand material on top so it's sealed off. And keep going up to a convenient size where you can still add into the middle without a stepladder. You don't want to do that. You want to be able to reach the middle. Top it off with a final layer. Always finish with the brown material. So brown, the dog manure, green, any other manure. Um, food scraps could go in there as well, any other manure with food scraps. But top, always top and leave in the waiting period time and the final layer when you get to full height of brown material. Um, get it nice and wet in that final stage. Don't bother wetting it too much on the way through. Um, leave it open to the rain if, until you get it finished. Then um, put a few sticks and branches over it. Um, cover it up uh, with, a, with a waterproof cover, um, plastic sheet or uh, some kind of waterproof tarp. Um, keep a, a few sticks on it just to keep the air flowing between the, the cover and the material. There's less chance of going anaerobic then. You've got airflow under the water cover. Wait down the water cover in case there's a big wind and leave it about two to three weeks, I'd say, to be on the safe side. 
right? And then turn it once a week and five turns later, should be fine to use it anywhere in the garden. So a bit of a process, but you've got a safe process there. Um, so five turns, you want at least a, um, a cubic meter, one and a half cubic meters, something like that. You don't want less than a cubic meter in volume. Volume does matter. Size does matter with compost because you won't get to a high enough temperature. Uh, you don't have to make it too precise. Just when it's ready after, after the first resting period, just turn it from one position to another, cover it back up again. Do that once a week for five weeks. You have pretty good compost you can put anywhere in the garden. It'd be quite safe. There you go. Next, we have a real estate investing question for John Pugliano, specifically about how emerging demographics and things like changes in the energy sector might affect real estate. Hey, TSP. Today, our economic question comes from Alberta, Canada, and Dan has a real estate question. Dan is asking, how much should we allow future trends in alternative energy and baby boomers to shape our investment strategies in the long term? And specifically what Dan is asking about in terms of investments is real estate. He owns three rental properties in Alberta, and that's the major part of his long-term retirement plan. Now, Dan's concerns are that where he lives in Alberta, Canada, the primary industrial sector up there is energy with a focus on you know, petroleum products, oil and natural gas. And in recent years, that's really been pulling back quite a bit. You know, his other concern is with the baby boomers where, you know, they're reaching retirement age, they're going to be downsizing, they're going to be moving out of single-family homes, and then, of course, eventually they're going to be passing on, and, you know, who's the generation that's going to come behind them to buy all the real estate? And so from a long-term perspective, should he be holding on to this real estate or looking at cashing it out at some point? So, Dan, let's start off talking about demographics. I personally wouldn't lose a whole lot of sleep over demographics uh, in Canada You, you do have more challenging population issues than we do here in the United States. As far as demographics in the United States, you know, we've been hearing from people like Harry Dent and other prognosticators of doom for the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years, constantly predicting a collapse in either the stock market or the real estate market, all predicated on the fact that the retiring baby boomers are going to pull down these markets. And then whenever there is a pullback, like in 2008 with the housing crisis or with a great recession and the, and the, you know, 40, 50% drawdown in the stock market, Guys like Harry Dent come out and say, see, I predicted this, I told you, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, in my opinion, I think that's all BS and marketing. Harry Dent's earlier predictions about the effects of demographics really had nothing to do with anything that we saw that took place in 2008 and 2009. And I doubt they'll have much impact going forward in the future. The, the bottom line on demographics is that as impactful as the generations of baby boomers have been, The millennials that are coming right behind them are a large cohort, and they're just starting to hit their productivity demographic sweet spot where they're in their late 20s, early 30s. They're forming households. They're buying houses. And as we see the baby boomers retiring and leaving the workforce, the millennials are going to step in and support the economy. Now, that's more true in the United States than it is in Canada because, as I mentioned, you do have more of a demographic challenge up there. You have a much smaller percentage of millennials. But overall, since Canada is very open to immigration, I think it's going to work out for you guys in the long run. So I wouldn't worry about demographics. Now, to your second question about alternative forms of energy having a negative impact on the energy sector up in Alberta, again, I wouldn't lose a whole lot of sleep over that. You have to remember that the energy sector, the petroleum products, 
they are always in some type of a boom or bust, feast or famine type pattern. And these trends go on and last for a decade or two, where there's generally a very bifurcated market of either very high prices or very low prices. And ultimately, what causes the cycle to shift is those very extremes in prices, because the solution to exceedingly high prices is the fact that more energy production comes online, either in the form of alternative energy or more exploration or better or cheaper ways to go out and harness the natural resources that are out there. So that when prices are really high, it incentivizes companies to produce more energy and consumers to conserve and have a more efficient use of the energy they have. And the corollary of that being exactly the opposite to where when you have very low energy prices, it encourages companies to curtail production and for consumers to increase their usage. That kind of behavior obviously creates a supply issue, forcing prices up and the cycle starts all over again. These things generally take a decade or two to form. So right now, in my opinion, what you're going through up in Alberta really has little to do with alternative sources of energy and more to do with the traditional energy boom and bust natural cycle that's always taking place. It's hitting you guys extremely hard right now for a couple reasons. The primary reason being the collapse in oil prices that started to occur at the, you know, about the end of 2014, the beginning of 2015, when shale oil and horizontal drilling really started to pay off in the United States. That made the Canadian Santar Petroleum much less competitive. And then the other really big impactful issue that you're dealing with in Alberta is that you guys are landlocked within a country that really doesn't have much of a, of a population base. So there's not a whole lot of use for the petroleum in Canada. Your major trading partners to the south, because of that, it's extremely hard for you to export. You have to pipeline down into the United States. The Obama administration gave you a lot of headaches over that with the Keystone Pipeline. Now you have the Trump administration that's fighting you guys with NAFTA. And even with all those barriers to trade that you're getting from the United States, your own countrymen are treating you even worse than Uncle Sam does. British Columbia to your west and what Trudeau's doing to you in the east, they've essentially blockaded the energy flow out of Alberta, whether it be through preventing pipelines from being built or other environmental restrictions on trucking and you know shipping the oil out by rail. The provincial feuding has gotten so strong that Albertans are really talking about seceding, which I don't think is realistic, but just like the extremes in oil pricing, that kind of political force, I believe, will enact change and will eventually right the situation. So as far as impacts on your real estate pricing from a long-term diminishing non-use of petroleum products because of alternative energy, I don't think that's a problem Canada and the United States and the world are a long, long way from alternative forms of energy, reducing the importance of petroleum products. And even as we do have more forms of renewable and alternative energy, there are still plenty of uses for petrochemical products, from plastics to pharmaceuticals to fertilizers. There's a petrochemical industrial complex that isn't going away in your lifetime. And remember what I said about booms and bust, feast and famine. If there does come a day when petroleum and natural gas are less economical to use than forms of alternative energy, then that simply drives the price of those natural resources down. And when they become cheaper, the market finds alternative uses for them and consumes them more. So my bottom line opinion on real estate in Alberta, Canada right now is that I think you guys are going through some challenging times, but you do have a major energy resource there. Industry and the government over the decades have spent billions and billions of dollars of putting infrastructure in there to access that energy. 
Once the natural cycle of petroleum prices start moving back up and when cooler heads prevail in your political system, the Alberta energy sector will start to flourish again. So for right now, any depressed pricing you may have on real estate, I'd ride it out until we start getting up into another energy peak. And then at that time, if you want to start shedding off the real estate and further diversifying yourself, I think that would be a good idea. You mentioned that you have your own business up in Alberta, so it would make sense for you to look for greater diversification. If all your money is invested in your personal business and then in real estate in that area, then you have a great deal of specific geographic risk. And so over time, I do think it would make more sense for you to take some of that money out of real estate and get it diversified more in the global economy so that your overall economic fate is not ultimately tied just to Alberta. Well, hey, Dan, thanks for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I mostly agree with John here. I do think if I was holding real estate in, in Alberta, I would be a little bit more worried maybe than John comes off, and I'll tell you why. Um, on the alternative energy thing, I do not see us completely abandoning petrochemical products in 10 years like some people think. I think that is so fanciful and over the top uh, that's ridiculous. I do see in 10 to 15 years almost every single home in the developed world producing some of its own energy because money, because self-interest, because people are selfish at heart. And I can, you can be selfish can be a positive thing. And what I mean by that is I do think we're going to get to a point where if you can, if you can, like I said, I've always said, if you can produce electricity for a nickel a watt, a nickel a kilowatt over time uh, and get an ROI on, on something like solar in, in four or five years or less, uh, when the power from the grid is costing you eight cents instead of a nickel, well, you're going to do it. You know, unless you don't have the money today, you're going to do it for tomorrow because it just it, it, it's it, it's a no brainer, and we I, I mean we're starting to see some of the prices get. We, Stephen Harris just posted some solar panels on the Facebook forum that you know you can buy about a palletful and it's just stupid cheap, and it's that's only going to continue. I mean it just absolutely is only going to continue. So you got to look at the totality here. So if 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 America started producing an additional 2% of its energy from something like that, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it's the number one consumer and now the number one producer of energy uh, in the world, it is it will it will cause the price to drop by a hell of a lot more than 2% across the board on, on oil itself. Now, what compounds this in Alberta in the tar sands, it is the most expensive oil you can produce. It's incredibly expensive compared to, you know, light, sweet crude, or even some of the stuff we're doing with fracking and horizontal drilling now. So you could see a significant decline in the amount of production coming out of the tar sands, and it may stay that way. Now, could there be some cycle that causes a boom again? Sure. But the other thing that is going to definitely adversely affect the tar sand oil is our production of natural gas. Because natural gas is absolutely viable. And we are building more and more facilities that rely on natural gas to produce electricity. It is cheap. It is abundant. All the stories that the wells are going to go dry in five years, if it's been way more than five years and they're not dry, and they're still pumping. And, and there's some of these wells 
of these gas wells, you know, they, they, they kind of hit a peak of production. It starts to ebb off and they actually cap them and they go back and check them in a couple, couple years and they're, they're producing at peak again because basically that's how gas works. It moves and pressure builds. Um, so that is going to be one of the bigger impacts on the price of oil and coal that there is in the foreseeable future, in my view. Then my other concern when anybody's dealing with real estate and oil booms or any even a gas boom, even if I think gas is going to be with us way longer than oil is, is a mainstay of, of providing energy for us, and I'm going into 100 years now. Um, when you have this work to be done in these towns where they, they get hit by these booms, it's an ass load of people that come into work, and then everything's built up to a certain point, and then the ongoing production doesn't require the headcount, and those people go somewhere else hopefully to get another job. So there are towns like, for instance, in the Dakotas where this exact type of thing happened. Yeah, everything boomed, but when everything was built and everybody left, it all went bust. So I think that you have to really look at it individually. And I wouldn't so much worry about millennials or solar panels, but this actual cycle. Now, the longer you've been holding the property, the better, because inflation does its magic when you are holding real estate. So that's something that mitigates it a great deal. So those are my additions to, to John's comments, which don't take what I said the wrong way. Again, I agree mostly with John. Probably I were 95% in sync here. Just These are other concerning points that he didn't really bring up that I'm more concerned about than, than solar and wind or you know, millennials and what have you. I mean, and the other thing is if you have reduction in oil pricing, um, kind of the place he's going to get hit first are these places like the tar sands because – even the moderates on fossil fuel usage, the people that are like, I wish we could use less, but we don't really have anything else. And the people that are realists, right, but they do see the, 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 the environmental damage that fossil fuel causes, go, yeah, that's really dirty oil. So it's easy to vilify. So I, I would just use some caution and you're, you know, you're long forward looking here and uh, you know, watch things and, and know if there's a time that you need to have an exit strategy and what that looks like because you make your money on your property, you let somebody else pay for it, you let inflation do its magic, you sell the property off to somebody else, you take your money and you go do something else with it, uh, maybe in an area less affected by the cycle of boom and bust. Uh, but make the money on the cycle. That's, like, that's how we always do it. Uh, next up, I got a question, another monetary question. This one's kind of interesting, given the one we let off with with Gary. Uh, this one comes from Lynn, and it says, Hey, Jack, do you have any advice on how to grow your savings? My husband and I both come from families that mostly live paycheck to paycheck or worse. Right now we have 20% for a down payment in the bank, but we plan on saving for another year or two. We have a regular savings account with Chase and don't get much interest. There seems to be way... Be ways to use that money to make more. We never were raised to think that way and wonder if we're missing out. People seem to invest in stocks or put their money in CD accounts where the bank will add some additional money. Would, would appreciate any advice uh, or episode you could point me to if it's been discussed already. Thanks much, Lynn. I've talked about saving and investing for 10 years now, so there's plenty of them out there. And probably searching for saving or investing at the website would find plenty of ways to do that. But I don't know that they're right for this particular question. This is where I'm going to say, if you were in front of me and I had visual aids, I'd have a giant caution light for you right now. Because when people start talking this way, they, they tend to get in themselves into trouble. 
So let's talk about the 20% down for a home that you've saved up. Number one, coming from a background where your parents live paycheck to paycheck and you have to ask this question, good on you. Good on you, good on you, good on you. Who freaking raw, okay? Like just this is awesome that you have taken the biggest step that you will ever need to take to own your life financially just by doing what you've done. Good freaking on you, okay? Now, this is what happens to people that have never had money in their life. They get grasses greener syndrome, and they look around them, and everybody's making money, and everybody's making money. And boy, the stock market's been really good to people lately. And um, I remember people doing this when they get a big fistful of money back in 1999. And hey, the stock market went up like 200%. And oh my God, I need to get in. And they bought right at the top of the market, and then they got their their you know their money cut in half. And it wasn't like getting your 401k cut in half that you you invested a little at a time and over time, and you didn't really feel it. This was money that they had actually found, saved up, windfalled, whatever. And they earned that money, and they just stuck it in there, and then bam. Okay, so this money, you have earmarked it. And we think of earmarking as a bad word because it makes us think of Congress clowns. But when I say earmarking, means I mean you have appropriated it. This money is for this thing, a down payment on a home. This money is money that thou shall not risk. I want you to go to your mirror and uh, look at yourself, and Lynn, and take your husband if you need to, and say, we shall not risk this money. It is earmarked for our home so that we can have a house. And we're going to have a 20% down payment, so we're not going to pay any PMI. We're going to get a great interest rate. We're going to have a lot of power when we go in to buy. We're going to be able to negotiate. We're going to be able to get the house of our dreams. And we're going to keep saving so that when we go in and do this, whatever that house needs that we're going to be able to do, we're going to have some more cash saved up. And that's going to make us able to look at houses that maybe aren't move-in ready because we'll have a budget. And we're going to be able to go in and maybe buy a house with 20% down and take what would be maybe another half of that or 10%. And instead of putting 30% down, we're going to make that 10% pay off to the tune of maybe 30% in total. Because if the person selling the house had that money and could do what we're going to do, they would be selling the house for 20 to 30% more. But they can't, so we're going to take that opportunity. And unlike many other buyers who are buying at the edge of what they can afford, we are buying well within what we can afford, so therefore we are in a power position as a negotiator. And that alone is a better return on your investment than you would get if you risked your money in the stock market right now and everything went well. I want you to think about this is something that people that are new to investing tend not to think about. What is the value of the money? What is the value of the money applied to the original intent of using it? So real estate is one of the best investments you can make. In spite of some of the things we just talked about with some riskiness and some boom and bust cycles, real estate, especially when we buy a piece of property we know we can afford, let's say that you buy a piece of property and its value goes down by 30%. If you don't plan on moving, it doesn't matter. All it means is you're going down and protesting your property taxes and trying to get your taxes reduced. It doesn't hurt you. It doesn't hurt you at all unless you need to move. And you only need to move if you put yourself in a bad position. So we know the real estate underlying investment is there. But if we had, let's say, $20,000 saved up beyond what we need to buy the house, and we look at this house, and this house has some problems, But none of them are that big. It's stuff like carpet, flooring, paint, countertops, etc. And we come up and we say, well, if we budgeted, because we want five grand in our back pocket in case we move in and the refrigerator explodes or something like that. We budget $15,000. If we are smart about the way we invest that $15,000 in our house, 
it doesn't make the house worth $15,000 more. It might make it worth $30,000 more. So now we've just doubled the value of our $15,000. We still have $5,000 in our back pocket. And the original 20% went toward purchasing the home, which is one of the best places our money can be parked, which is real estate anyway. And since we've learned to be disciplined, now we're going to make accelerated payments on our house, and we're going to pay off our house in 7 to 10 years, not 30. Now we're going to have a whole bunch of money tied up in the house, and we're not going to have a mortgage like everybody else does, and we're still going to be saving money in the interim. But once that's done, we're going to have money just coming out of our wazoo, and we can really stack that money into our investments at that point. And if we ever decide we want a smaller house as we get older or something like that, we have this big old hunk of, of home equity sitting back here. See how that works? And that is, that is a zero-risk game. Now, there is no such thing as risk-free investing. There's risk-free, generally risk-free loaning, but there is not risk-free investing. A CD that you talked about or a certificate of deposit that pays a little bit more interest is about as risk-free as money can be. Your money is no more at risk in a CD than it is in a savings account, and they'll give you more interest. And since we've earmarked the money, there's no harm in parking that money in a certificate of deposit for the additional interest that we'll get out of it. And that's probably where I would put that money right now. And I would make sure the CD expires before you think you're going to need it. So if you think you're at 24 months before you go shopping for homes in earnest, you might look at an 18-month CD for that money. And you might even ladder it in six-month CDs or three-month CDs so that they each mature at different times. So you might buy a three-month CD right now with a quarter of the money and then a three-month CD and have them auto-renew. And that way it's called laddering, and you can look that up on Google understand it. What it means is at any given point in time, a quarter of your money is becoming available with no penalty for early withdrawal. And then you just need to make sure you're stopping those automatic withdrawals, you know, about three to four months before you think you're going to need the money, and it all comes to maturity at that point. It's not a lot of money you're going to gain by laddering, laddering it at this point, so I might just do, you know, a six-month with half, and then when that six months is up, let it roll over and do the other half, and that way at least half of it's free every six months. And then shut it all down and make sure you time it right. You'll have to figure that out for yourself based on your needs. And that'll give you some extra interest. It's not a lot of money, though. It's probably not worth making complicated, um, and it does tie your money up if you need it. You'll have to pay a penalty to get the money out of the CD, which will erase all of your gains. So really think about whether you want to do it. But basically that money should be put into some place it cannot lose money because you've earmarked it. You have out. You have said this is what this is for, so you don't risk money that's been earmarked. Now the additional money you're saving for right now, I would probably just continue to save that in a savings account or into CDs, because you do not have what I would call investment money right now. You have saved up for a home, and what you need to be working on anyway now is your 90-day emergency fund. Your 90-day emergency fund is whatever you and your husband make. You put that together, and you want to save up that much money, and it needs to stay in a form where you can get it without penalty. So that's not going to go on an IRA. It's not going to go on a Roth account, and it's probably not going on the stock market. That's really the money to put into laddered CDs and things like that, uh, at least a portion of it, and leave some of it out. And, you know, you want short-term CDs there so that it's an emergency fund, which means if, it exp if, they, if these CDs expire every 30 days, you can get through an emergency by just waiting a week or two, and then that money's available. 
Once you have that 90-day emergency fund put away and you have your 20% for your house, and that piece of money probably would not be sitting in a plain Jane savings account or certificate of deposit otherwise, but since it's earmarked, we're going to keep it safe. Now additional monies. We can start saving additional money. And we probably need to save like little ants really, really hard to get that additional money. And we are better off working harder, making more money, and, and cutting our expenses even further until we have about twenty dollars to $30,000. And then we need to look at investing. Or along the path there, we can start doing something like a Roth IRA is what I would do. And, you know, you start putting that money into that Roth IRA, and then you start looking at investments. I can't tell you what to invest in. And I can tell you that right now you don't sound like you're ready to make those decisions. So right now I would just continue to save and I would start doing research. And I would start looking for a good uh, financial manager if you can find someone. The problem is getting a financial manager when you're at this stage in your life that's worth a damn is difficult. Most of the financial managers that are out there are nothing but relationship salesmen. They work for companies like American Express or Edward Jones. They really don't know. They're asked from a hole in the ground about investing. Um, all they do is they have you fill out a questionnaire and the corporate spits out a really fancy looking report with pie charts on it that would look exactly the same for someone else with totally different goals if they were the same age and the same risk tolerance as you, which means it's not really very useful. Um, because investing in stocks over time generally works out, it generally works out, but you're probably better off picking some solid mutual funds when you get to that level, but you're not there yet. Where, you, where you're at now is just save the money. If, if you just leave this money in a plain Jane savings account, don't worry that so-and-so next door so they just made an 18% return for the year. Um, they may have an 18% loss next year, and they had the 18% return, and all you have is an 18% loss. This money is for your future. And this money is not money you're going to be using in 50 years where it belongs growing in a long-term growth-style investment. It belongs absolutely safe and secure and available. And what's going to help you, especially on a first-time home buyer, by when you do all your paperwork for your mortgage and, and they say, well, where did you get it? And you got it from savings and they ask for bank account records. And you've not only had the money uh, available and save the money, and it can be seen that it was saved, but you've had the money for a long time. You've had it for two years. You've been waiting to buy. It, it definitely helps with getting your mortgage approved and at favorable rates and which lenders will give you a loan and which won't. So that that's the advice I'd give you now. I know it's not exciting. I know it's not, hey, look, go triple your money here or go throw it in Bitcoin or something like that, but it's honest to God advice that I would give my own son. Uh, so you know that it's it's good advice. At least it's as good as I can give you. But your mindset is impressive given what you say about the background that you guys grew up with. And so now you're asking that question. That question's a great question. But the biggest problem with that question, instead of leading to methodical, slow wealth development, it leads to the thought of we got to do something now. we got to do something now. We're missing the opportunity. The opportunity is being in a commanding position without an overpayment on a home that's going to provide for you for decades. That's what this money's for, and don't lose sight of it. Also, I highly recommend for people in general learning more about wealth, 
the old book, The Richest Man in Babylon. You can go to YouTube and search for it there, and you can find the entire thing in audio where you can listen to it all. And I'd start listening to it in your car or whatever. Just make sure you don't stop listening to TSP. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can find it. In fact, I ripped it into four MP3s and put it on my server where they can be downloaded. I'll put a link to that directory in the show notes for you as well. I really think it's probably one of the best things to get your mind right about money. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to support us, remember you can always do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. That'll take you down to where all our Amazon reviews and things like that are on the website. Today's uh, product is one of the top 10 selling items that I, that I have on my reviews of all time for Uh, the Survival Podcast. I think when I did the estimate on it, it's like number eight, because I can, unless I dig into spreadsheets, I can only see back one year. But it's about the eighth all-time highest-selling thing. And it's Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. And this is a comfrey-based ointment, but it has a lot of other things in it. And it definitely does everything that comfrey does and then more. And it's mainly for sprains, uh, pulled muscles, aching muscles, uh, bruises, fractures even it's useful for. I mean, not all in of itself, but Comfrey's uh, folk name is, uh, folk medicine name is Bone Knit. Kind of tell you where that goes back to. The reason I keep bringing this around is, number one, it made a believer out of me. There was a, a time a few years ago when I severely strained and literally tore to a degree, not completely, but some degree, uh, both my MCL and LCL in my right leg. And it was absolutely one of those cases where doctors say, you, you need to do surgery here. Uh, if not surgery, uh, it's going to be a really long road of, of physical therapy. And it's like, well, you know, you can always do surgery later, but you can't undo it. So let me try this. And I used this, and it took me about six weeks to fully recover. Um, but I was told that, you know, it would be a hell of a lot longer full recovery than that if I'd had surgery on it. And I avoided the surgery and reduced the time. And I would say that, you know, my knees are not the greatest to begin with, they're, but they're as good as they were before that injury now. And I've heard from dozens and dozens, probably hundreds by now, of people that have used this product out of this audience that have said it is, it is a godsend in their lives. Uh, from acute uses where they got a really bad bruise from an impact injury and it, it reduced the time of pain of the injury to people that have used it on, on abrasions. Uh, to people that have had, you know, really sore joints and things like that. And, you know, I can't, I'm not a doctor and I can't claim this thing as a drug because it isn't. It's just a salve. Um, and I can't say it'll work for you and I can't say it treats or cures illnesses or whatever, but you can, you know, you can look at the history of the use of comfrey yourself. And I can tell you that my personal experience is this stuff works really well and it belongs in everybody's first aid kit. Uh, and general care kits, you know, we always have at least one tub of this, uh, on our shelves. I've used it on the dogs for, uh, you know, places where they have like abrasions on their skin, hot spots, whatever. About the only thing I can say with dogs is if it's where they can lick, it doesn't work real good because they'll lick it all off. It doesn't hurt them. They just, they lick it all off. I, I don't know why. It doesn't smell real good, but, uh, dogs eat things that don't smell good all the time. I mean, otherwise, it's just fantastic. Uh, give it a try. If you have any aches or pains in your joints that just don't want to go away, um, sh shallow abrasions and scrapes and cuts are fine. The one thing about comfrey is it is so good at healing. The one concern is deep puncture wounds 
and deep in deep cuts, anything like that, do not use comfrey or any comfrey-containing comfrey product on it because it will heal the surface of the wound very quickly. It, it's startling how fast it can do it. And what can happen is in a deep wound, it might need to be open for infection, pus, etc. to seep out. And that's the one warning that you give people with comfrey. And that, and that alone says how good it works. So check it out again. It's called Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. You can find it at TSPAS or just the survivalpodcast.com by uh, scrolling down. And guys, gals, if you are not on my daily email list, you should get on it. I know everybody gets too much email, but all of this stuff every day gets packaged up in one simple text email, no pictures, no no integrated crap or anything like that. I just send out an email every day right when I finish the show, item of the day, announcements, all that stuff goes in there. Just, you know, usually somewhere between three and five, you know, things with, with links, and that's all that it is. But that way you don't ever miss out on anything or reminders. And to do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe and sign up for the email list. With that, we have reached the end of another episode. And I've got a song for you today. I actually flip-flopped the songs. Uh, ELO, Hold On Tight for Your Dreams, what we played yesterday. That's what John Adam had for Friday. I decided to play this song because to me this is not really, you know, it's a country song. It's not a rocking great weekend song or anything like that, but it's a happy song. And it's called High Cotton by the greatest country music band in the world ever, Alabama. And if you disagree, you're just wrong. And the numbers say you're wrong because they had, you know, 40 number one hits 25 years ago. So I'm sorry, you're, you're wrong. Uh, they're the most successful by no, uh, no, no comparison to anybody country music band ever. Uh, and it's because of great real music. It really comes from a lot of their background. So two members of the band um, actually grew up on cotton farms. And this song, again, yeah, is called High Cotton. And it talks about their childhood and how this very simple time when they were actually, their families were dead broke. They didn't know they were dead broke and they were happy. And even with all their success in life, it's still some of the happiest times of their lives. I think this song is universal. It has definite southern quality to it. When you talk about a cotton farm, we just don't have cotton farms in Pennsylvania, where I grew up as a kid, for instance. It's just not a thing. And if you live up in like New England or something, obviously you don't have cotton farms. You don't have farms that have the kind of fields you'd grow cotton in because they're smaller fields and what have you because of the terrain and elevation. Um, you know, if you're in the Northwest, they don't grow cotton in the Northwest. So you might think that this isn't that universal, but it is completely universal for the people that grew up in any kind of a small town atmosphere, especially where your family was poor or not quite well off and you didn't even know it because you had everything you needed. And I think there is some definite false nostalgia in America today, but I also think there's what I would call a false nostalgia narrative that's false. And what I mean by that is if there's people that did not grow up like this, a lot of people, especially today there's far more people that are adults that didn't grow up like this than there were, let's say, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, probably half of all people you met could relate to growing up like this. And 20 years before that, you know, probably 80% of the country could really relate to growing up like this. And it's one of the reasons people are so damn miserable. When you listen to this song and you listen to the words in this song and you allow it to permeate into what you remember about your life if you grew up this way, even in a totally different way. 
even if it wasn't high cotton, even if it was, you know, uh, walking through the strip mine, the old strip mines and, and hunting with a 22 rifle as a 14 year old kid in Pennsylvania, like I did, you know, but the, the, the concept of the community and people together and you don't work on Sundays and things like that. Um, if you let yourself think about that, this song will make you really happy. And the people that it won't work for, they're the ones that can't understand how we could have ever been happy without having more stuff. They're the people that always want the government to give us free stuff because they think stuff is what makes you happy. It isn't. It isn't at all. This song really talks about the core things that humans really need to be happy. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. I hope you have a happy one. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We didn't know the times were lean. Around our house the grass was green. It didn't seem like things were all that bad. I bet we walked a thousand miles Chopping cotton and pushing plows And learning how to give it all we had As life went on and years went by I saw the light in daddy's eyes And felt the love in mama's hands They kept us warm and kept us fed and Taught us how to look ahead Now looking back I understand We were walking in high cotton Old times there are not forgotten Those fertile fields are never far away We were walking in high cotton Old times there are not forgotten Leaving home was the hardest thing we ever faced Sunday mornings rolled around We dressed up in hand-me-downs Just in time together with the church Sometimes I think how long it's been And how it impressed me then It was the only day my daddy wouldn't work We were walking in high cotton Old times there are not forgotten Those fertile fields are never far away Walking in high cotton, old times there are not forgotten. Leaving home was the hardest thing we ever faced. We were walking in high cotton, old times there are not forgotten. Those fertile fields are never far away. We were walking in high cotton, old times there are not forgotten. Leaving home was the hardest thing we ever faced. Walking in high cotton.